0: This passage, the entirety of which can be seen in verses 12 through 26, deals with a block of time in between the Ascension and Pentecost. It's a waiting period. There's a sense in which you could say the upper room in which Jesus' apostles, as well as others, were staying was a waiting room. We tend not to be fans of waiting times, waiting periods. You know, you usually don't walk through an amusement park and say, this is great, 220 minutes before you get on the ride, fantastic. You usually don't say something like, how was the appointment to somebody? And then hear a response like this, I'll tell you, the waiting time was excellent and the appointment was excellent. You don't usually say things like that. We often tend to think of waiting times as wasted time. But if we go through the scriptures, sometimes implicitly, in other cases explicitly, we see that waiting times are often used by God as times of preparation, Preparation for something he wants to do through somebody and so on. Now there are examples where it's not explicitly stated, but you could safely assume that the 40 years in between Moses' killing an Egyptian who was afflicting a fellow Israelite served to humble him and prepare him to be the Old Testament mediator, that means of deliverance for Israel that he would be. You would imagine that David's flight from Saul refined him, tested him, cultivated at least even further, I would say, that humble spirit that depended upon the Lord in prayer and prepared him to be the king of Judah and then ultimately the king of a united Israel. So you look at text, and you can say, I could see how God would use those times as times of preparation. And other times it's rather explicit. When we come to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, this waiting time is really purposeful. And when you get into the text, you see that rather clearly. Ironically, we're going to have to wait until next week, Lord willing, until we see the full view of how this waiting time was used, but nonetheless, we'll see some of that um, today. The passage makes abundantly clear that this time was not wasted. Rather, it was necessary. I mean, think about this for the apostles. They were told to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, for the outpouring, the promise of the Father, and it didn't happen the day after. It didn't even happen two days after. It happened ten days after that. And so they had to wait. And I just want to make a little bit of an application at this point, a little bit of pastoral counsel, a little bit of an aside. For you who are in Christ, for you who have trusted Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, for you who have repented, you had a change of thinking that resulted in a change of behavior, and you trust in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, I would encourage you to be convinced that your waiting times are not without purpose. But I would exhort you to steward them well. Because you could mismanage a waiting period, or you could steward it wisely. Redeem the time, including waiting times. God works all things together for good for those who love Him. And are called according to His purpose. Even extended times of waiting. Let's get into the text and we'll begin to be reminded of how you and I are to use times of waiting so that they might be both purpose-filled and fruitful. We begin in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, where we read, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Okay, So the first thing we're told at the very beginning of the verse is that they returned to Jerusalem. Don't just sweep past that. They rendered to the Lord Jesus Christ swift obedience. Acts chapter 1 verse 4, Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And what do we see? As soon as he ascends and as soon as the angels interpret what had happened for them and remind them that he is coming again, what do they do? The very next verse tells us they returned to Jerusalem. And they made haste to do so. I think it's worth noticing how their obedience was rendered swiftly. And I think we would do well to learn from that. Sometimes, perhaps even oftentimes, delayed obedience can turn into disobedience. A person might have good intentions about doing good things, doing something that the Lord has prescribed in His Word for them to do, but then just wait. If you wait long enough, sometimes you forget about what you had committed to, and that good intention can be a good deed left undone. I think a good example of this could be found in the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, they desired to help Christians who were in need, suffering Christians. The Macedonians were an example of those who did, but the Corinthians didn't. But they had good intentions. Paul unpacks that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But they didn't act on those intentions. As a matter of fact, it was over a year until they would do so. So I would just encourage you, if God is calling you to do something, something that's clearly attested to in His Word, He's prescribed it in His Word, I would encourage you, Be swift, to render to him swift obedience. Some of you might have heard the expression. It's an expression that makes its way around the world of productivity. Eat the frog. It's an expression that I believe is derived from something that Mark Twain had said. He had said something along the lines of, Eat a live frog first thing in the morning, and nothing worse will happen to you the rest of the day. (laughs) So at least one writer had seen in that, an opportunity to make an application for time management and productivity. In other words, saying something along the lines of, if you do your hardest task first thing in a day, if you, quote-unquote, eat the frog, you get that out of the way, and then the other tasks that you have to do during the day will not be hampered by your anxiety or your stress over having to do that difficult task. I think one can easily see the benefits of applying such a principle. Like If you're not distracted or stressed out by... Such a challenging task, and you can get it done earlier on in the workday, the mental load in which you carry throughout the day will be lighter, and the attention that you can give to other things will be greater. Now, if we could see some measure of prudence in that, how much more prudent, how much more wise is it to render unto the Lord Jesus swift obedience? It's not like you're quote unquote eating the frog. You are doing something unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're not just doing it for the sake of personal efficiency and productivity. You're doing it for His glory. So I come back to what we see here in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. By the grace of God, grow in the grace of rendering to the Lord Jesus Christ swift obedience. Even if it seems hard, you're not doing it for simply personal efficiency or personal productivity. You're doing it for Christ's glory. And I think when that happens, I think it's neat to think how Jesus gets to appear as the preeminent priority in the person's life when obedience is rendered swiftly. So it's just a simple statement here at the beginning of verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem. That's what Jesus told them to do. And that's what they did. And apparently they did it swiftly. Back to the text. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. From the Mount called Olivet. Just to remind you, the Mount called Olivet is the Mount of Olives. It's the place from which Jesus ascended. It is the place to which Jesus will descend, according to Zechariah 14, verse 4. The feet of the eternally begotten Son of God who took on flesh will touch on the Mount of Olives. And the topography, if you go through Zechariah 14 of that land, will change. More about that in a moment. Now the location, we're told here, is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Now according to Jewish tradition, now this is not explicitly prescribed in God's law, the people of Israel were allowed to just travel a certain distance on a Sabbath day. You couldn't travel, according to Jewish tradition, the same distance that you would on any other day of the week. That's why it says a Sabbath day's journey. Because the amount of distance that a Jewish person would travel on a Sabbath day Was different. According to Jewish tradition, you could only travel about a little over half a mile. If you round up about six tenths of a mile, you could travel on the Sabbath day. You'd say, where do they get that from? Well, that calculation was extracted from Israel's camp arrangement in the wilderness. The furthest tents within the camp arrangement of Israel in the wilderness was about 2,000 cubits away from the tabernacle which turns out to be about 3,000 feet. So the furthest anyone would ever have to travel on a day of the Sabbath to get to the tabernacle would be about 2,000 cubits or 3,000 feet. Approximately, give or take, depending on how fast you walk, about a 10-minute walk. Now you might say, okay, that seems like an insignificant geographic detail. Why spend so much time even just giving us those details? Well, A, it helps you to understand it. B, it helps us to appreciate, again, the historical accuracy and attention to detail with which Luke, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes. But then also, I would say, it could add another detail to your sanctified imagining of what it will be like when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. When he comes and his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, which is about a Sabbath day's journey away from Jerusalem, Zechariah 14 doesn't unpack exactly what will happen, but you can imagine he lands on the Mount of Olives and he makes his way, perhaps it works out just like this, towards Jerusalem, enthroned as the king there. And now you can imagine in your mind, well hey, that's about a 10 minute walk, depending on how fast or slow he walks. Just setting your mind on things above like that, using your imagination in that way, I think has more ripple effects of blessing in a Christian's life than we might imagine. Instead of having our mind on earthly things as much as we often do, just imagining how that might play out in light of the text of Scripture I think brings with it more edification than we often realize. He's coming, and it may play out just like that, but now you know when he lands on the Mount of Olives, it's a Sabbath day journey away from Jerusalem, which is about a 10-minute walk. (laughs) Next, Luke provides an accounting of who was there at Jerusalem awaiting the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In verses 13 and 14, we read, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, earlier manuscripts don't include the word supplication, with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers." So they went into the upper room where they were staying. This may very well have been the upper room. It likely was that room that they were in for fear of the Jews. The room that you see in John chapter 20. That They go back there and that's going to be where they are going to wait. Then we get a listing of who's there. We see the 11 apostles because Judas had forsaken his office. Now, to give you a little hint of what's coming, Lord willing, next week, one of the reasons for this waiting period, one of the reasons why it was intentional and purposeful and needful is because there was only 11 apostles. And the Lord didn't want the day of Pentecost to come until the number 12 was back in play, until there were 12 apostles. Like the 12 tribes of Israel, there was to be 12 apostles there on the day of Pentecost. More about that, Lord willing, next week. But here we have the 11 apostles listed. And I would say this is a good opportunity for those who might not know to memorize who the 11 apostles were. Interesting family trivia question, right? Wife, you can ask your husband. Husband, you can ask your wife later. Child, you can ask your parent or so on, however you want it to work out. You can ask somebody, ask a friend, ask a brother or sister in Christ, do you know who the 11 apostles are? Not to just put someone on the spot and try to embarrass them, but it could be a fun thing that you could do in safe company where they won't feel embarrassed. And the reason why I mention that is because not because it's a trivia detail that you need to get into heaven. As though, like, you know, the only people who are going to get into heaven are those who can recite who the 11 apostles were before another one was added. The reason why I say that is because oftentimes, as Christians, there are details like that, like fundamental Bible details that we might not know. I'm not talking about the gospel. Like, you have to know the gospel if you're a Christian. Like, if you became a Christian, you have to know how you became a Christian, that by the grace of God, you believe the gospel that you deserve the eternal wrath of God, but God sent His Son to stand in your place and to bear the wrath that you deserve, and that it's only through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and faith alone in Him that you are saved. You need to know that. But there are fundamental things that will be good for Christians to know. For example, what are the books of the Bible? What did God do on the six days of creation? What did He do on day one, or day two, or day three, or day four, or day five, or day six? What are the Ten Commandments? I say that, I remember early on in my Christian life, um, I was having meetings with an assistant pastor, kind of going through uh, a discipleship process. Uh, we had a relationship, good, good relationship, and I'd meet with him, and he'd kind of disciple me, give me different things to read and, and so on. And then one day he had asked me to tell him what the Ten Commandments were. I'm a relatively new Christian, and I'm kind of stumbling through it. And he said something to me along the lines of ABCs, brother, ABCs. And it just stuck in my mind because we could take for granted, we can know theological concepts and we can have, you know, I don't understand theological concepts, but we should know some basic things about the scriptures. Like what are the books of the Bible? What are the Ten Commandments? What did the Lord do in the six days of creation? And maybe you put in the category here, memorizing who the 11 apostles were. You can maybe work up to uh, memorizing who the kings of Israel were, who the kings of Judah were who was in Jesus' genealogy. By the way, I'm not just saying this for just rote memorization purposes. The more you have in your mind about God's word, the more you have access to things to meditate on, to pray about, and to praise God in light of. I'm telling you, when you think about who these apostles were, and some of whom you know well and some of whom you don't, When you just know them, you could even think about the amazing grace of God in using them. And it could lead to edification in a bunch of ways. Hopefully you'll get a little bit of a glimpse of that today. So one of the reasons why we're only stopping at verse 14 today is because for those of you who might not be familiar, I wanted to give you a little bit of an overview of who these men were. I'm not going to do it so much with the first three. Because I think the first three we are well familiar with, or at least to a degree, in light of them being spoken about more than the others in the scriptures but the others, I want to give you a little bit more about who they were so that you might be encouraged and instructed, even as we go through the book of Acts. As we go through the book of Acts, you'll see occasions in my family devotional last night with the family, we were in Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, you see that the apostles were beaten. Apostles, plural. They were beaten. And they left having been beaten by the Jewish religious leadership, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now, it wasn't just Peter, John, and James. That included the other men that you're going to hear about briefly right now. So if you have a better idea of who they are, some of which we know definitively, some of which comes to us through history and tradition and may or may not be true, I think it could lead you to better appreciate some of what you're going to see in the book of Acts as we go forward as well. So first we have Peter. I won't spend much time on Peter because you are probably decently familiar with him. He was the fisherman from Galilee who became a fisher of men. He was the one that Jesus at the outset of Peter's ministry called Cephas. You can see that in John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42. He is the one who is kind of like the first among equals. Kind of, in a lot of ways, it plays out that he's the spokesman for the apostles. He is the one who made that great confession, that Caesarea Philippi confession, where he said to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it wasn't flesh and blood that had revealed that to him. It was Jesus' Father in heaven. He is the one who denied the Lord Jesus three times. And he is the one who confessed his love to the Lord Jesus three times when Jesus restored him. He, as it comes down to us through history and tradition, is said to have been crucified upside down. Jesus had told him, essentially, that he was going to be martyred. We see that towards the end of John's Gospel. And it may very well have played out just like that, that he was crucified upside down. Then there's James. James, the son of Zebedee. One of the sons of thunder. As we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see that he is the first apostle to be martyred. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 12. He is, if you will, one of the three. You often see in the Gospels, right, that there are three. Like the three who go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Right, Peter, James, and John. He is one of the three. There's John. He's listed next. Uh, John is that beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, I would argue, and the book of Revelation. He's the one who fell face down when he saw Jesus in the book of Revelation. And think about this one. He's the one who laid his head upon Jesus' chest. So close to Jesus, yet when he saw Jesus in the book of Revelation, he fell down at his feet. So, so close, yet in such awe of the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about it, it could be overlooked that he went on and he kept ministering, even though his brother was the first one to be martyred. And there's no signs of John becoming bitter. Like Peter gets released from prison later on in the book of Acts, but my brother didn't. Just consigned himself to the will of God, doubtless trusted God's will, and went about his business of doing ministry for the glory of God. He was the one who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Now, John Fox, he had noted... Now, again, some of these details, you'll have different... Bits of historical information. So you don't stand on these historical details in the same way you stand on the scriptures. The scriptures are the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. But then we have historians like Eusebius writing an early church history. We have somebody like John Fox who had tried to compile from different traditions and records an accounting of the martyrs in the church. And there are other early church writers. So it's hard to get a clear definitive assessment of certain things. But one of the things that may have been the case with John is that prior to being sent from Ephesus to Rome, according to um, John Fox, he was ordered to be boiled in a cauldron of oil, but escaped by way of a miracle. At that point, he is believed to have been released um, to the Isle of Patmos. Not released, sent to the Isle of Patmos. Eventually released due to his old age. And then some argue, some say, he was the only apostle not to die a martyr's death. There is at least one writing that I know of in church history that's connected to um, an early church writer, Papias, who said that he was killed by a group of Jewish men. So maybe he was martyred like the others, but maybe he wasn't and he was the only apostle to escape uh, martyrdom in God's providence. Then there's Andrew. Andrew was Peter's brother and also a fisherman. Now one of the things that you might not realize about Andrew is that he was the one that was used by God to lead Peter to Jesus. You see this in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. Speaking of Andrew, in John chapter 1, verse 41, and in reading the first half of verse 42, his, he first, this is um, Andrew, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew is one of the disciples of John the Baptist. He comes across Christ and then he goes and he tells his brother. And his brother comes to Christ. And Christ there, at the beginning of Peter's ministry, calls him Cephas, stone. Which is a great witness to the fact that Christ had plans for him. And the transformative work that God would do in Peter. And that he would declare that even at the beginning of Peter's ministry. But Andrew was the one who brought Peter to Christ. According to Fox, uh, once again... Uh, He, speaking of Andrew, preached the gospel to many Asiatic nations. But on his arrival to Edessa, he was taken and crucified on a cross, the ends of which were fixed transversely in the ground. Which is why you'd often see people say, or hear people say, that Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. How do you get an X-shaped cross? Well, you just tilt it, and you have two ends put in upon the ground. So that may have been how Andrew gave his life for the glory of God and serving Christ. Then there's Philip. Now we see Philip next. Philip was found by Jesus. And Jesus said to him in John chapter 1, verse 43, Follow me. He was from Bethsaida, which is the city of Andrew and Peter. You see that in John chapter 1, verse 44. He is the one who found Nathanael, a.k.a. Bartholomew, and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. You go through the scriptures and you see a little bit more of interactions with Philip. He's the one to whom Jesus asked the question, "Where shall we buy bread that these men that these may eat?" John chapter 6 verse 5. You see Jesus asked him that says it in the text so as to test him. Because Jesus knew what he himself would do. Uh, Philip is the one to whom certain Greeks came and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. John chapter 12 verse 21. He is the one that said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient sufficient for us. John chapter 14 verse 8. So his request prompted Jesus' following statement, which says a lot about who Jesus is in relationship to the Father. John chapter 14, verse 9. Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? What would be unpacked further in the epistles that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he's the express imprint of the Father's person, that there's the Father who's unbegotten, and there's the eternally begotten Son of God, the light from light, the true God from true God, you get a little bit of a glimpse of that in his response to Philip. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because he is the image of the invisible God. Now, Philip is said to have done gospel ministry in Upper Asia, and to have become a martyr, perhaps, in Phrygia, and to quote from, again, from John Fox, he was, quote, scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards, crucified. Then there's Thomas. Thomas is interesting. I have a little bit of a theory about uh, Thomas's personality, but I say it based upon the Scriptures. When you go through the Scriptures and you see the few times in which we hear Thomas speak, he seems to be a kind of pessimistic realist. That, that's what you get when you, when, you, when you kind of look at him. I, I, I don't like, as you've heard me preach in Resur- Resurrection Sunday um, sermons before, uh, I don't like doubting Thomas because he was only doubting for a little while. He was believing Thomas for much longer. So call him believing, Thomas. Do him a favor in that regard. But as far as his personality of pessimistic realism, I think you first see this in um, the 11th chapter of uh, John's Gospel. When Jesus is going to go and wake up Lazarus and raise him from the dead. And Thomas, among others, knew, okay, if we go there, this is trouble. Because really, if we go there, persecution is on the horizon. So Thomas says this, let us also go. This is after Jesus says, let us go to Lazarus. Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) So Thomas was one like, we know where this is going. Come on, everybody. Let's all go because we're all going to die. Get a little glimpse into his personality there. The different dynamics of the personalities of these called and blessed men. Who yet had a nature just like ours? Uh, he is the one uh, whose statement to Jesus prompted one of the most glorious statements that you've ever heard uttered from the mouth of anyone who's quoted Scripture, John chapter 14, verse 6. But remember how that came, because Jesus was talking to his disciples about not letting their hearts be troubled, that they believe in God, believe also in Him that he was going to prepare a place for them, that in his father's house there are many dwelling places, and if it was not so, he would have told them. So Thomas is there listening, and Thomas is hearing Jesus say these things, and he says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know. I don't know if he said it like this, but I imagine him saying it like this. Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Again, just kind of like, just comes right out with it, which prompts Jesus to say those glorious words, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the one who refused to believe. On resurrection uh, Sunday evening, he wasn't there, we know, and then heard the reports and so on and refused to believe. Um, But then he came and he did believe, and upon seeing the resurrected Christ, don't forget what he said. John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas said those words that if you know the deity of Christ is clear in the scriptures, one of the verses you know oftentimes is John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Thomas said that. It seems to be somewhat of a consensus as to uh, where Thomas went and what he did. It appears that he went to India, uh, perhaps Parthia in India. And again, quoting from Fox. We're exciting the rage of pagan priests. He was martyred by being thrust through with a spear. That brings us to Bartholomew. He is mentioned four times in the New Testament. Each time that his name is listed, it's listed in reference to the, uh, in connection with the listing of the apostles. So we really don't know much about Bartholomew outside of that, except for the fact that he is likely Nathanael also listed among Jesus' disciples in John chapter 21, uh, verses 1 and 2. Now, just as a quick note, because that could get confusing for some people. They could say, wait a minute, he's Bartholomew, but he's also Nathanael? Like, how does that work? You know this if you read the scriptures, that in that first century Jewish culture, oftentimes people had more than one name, right? Simon was called Cephas and Petros in Greek, John was also called, or Mark was also called John, right? John Mark, as we know him. Saul was also called Paul. We're going to see when we get to Thaddeus, he had a few names. So this was kind of common in that time. Um, And such was likely the case with Bartholomew. He was also known likely as Nathaniel. Now, different accounts as to how he may have died, how he may have been martyred. um, But it seems to be that at some point he was beaten, and crucified. Other accounts suggest differently that he was flayed and beheaded. Other accounts suggest that he was beaten and drowned. What is clear is that he gave his life for the gospel. He gave his life for the gospel and the proclamation of it. I'm not done going through the list yet, but you are starting to feel how this could be encouraging? Like this is your heritage. And I know we have this gravity towards comfort, but the more that we have our eyes on the text of Scripture... And men like this that God used in the mighty way—the more in which we can be reminded that there is a cost associated with our Christianity—and maybe by the grace of God, we'll think more like the apostles if we know more about them as we study the Word of God. Because again, Acts chapter five, when they were beaten, they didn't leave saying, "I wonder if my shoulder's out of joint. I wonder if this wound's going to heal. I wonder if my face is going to scar. I'm scared that this is going to happen again." They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for His name. I've often said to you, I've said it to my family in devotional time, I, I wish a lot of times I could just, like, kind of like how it happens in Superbook, where they just go back and hang out with the biblical character. I would love to hang out with the apostles. I would love to hang out with Paul. You, you say that, George, but do you want to be beaten? Probably not. I don't want to be beaten. But I think if I was around somebody like the apostle Paul who said, I count my life as nothing, only that I might finish the race before me with joy. And so on, to kind of paraphrase of what Paul had said, I think that will rub off on us. And I'm hoping as you hear about these men and you consider the cost, in light of what is, yet alone what may be coming, that you would be a person who says, whatever the cost, by the grace of God. I can't handle it in myself. I would wither. But I know the Holy Spirit inside of me can give me boldness to bear up under whatever persecution could arise as I share the gospel in the here and now or bear witness for Christ in the days to come. And there's Matthew, Matthew, also known as Levi. He's the tax collector to whom Jesus said, follow me. Matthew chapter 9 verse 9, Luke chapter 5 verse 27. His profession, as you probably well know, was a despised one. So he was a Jewish man who was basically subcontracted by Rome, and he was collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. And there was infamy that was associated with that profession because what you could do as a tax collector is you didn't need to only collect, you should have only collected what was rightfully due to the Roman Empire, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but you could collect more and then keep the difference for yourselves and for yourself. That's why John the Baptist would say to the tax collectors, remember the tax collectors came to him after he issued that call to repentance and they say, what should we do? And he says to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Luke chapter 3, verse 13. So this is Matthew. He is the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And it appears when you look at the early church writer Eusebius of Caesarea in his work, Church History, he quotes from Papias of Hierapolis saying that Matthew wrote the oracles in the Hebrew language and everyone interpreted them as he was able. Uh, John Fox would say that those, um, that first work of Matthew's Gospel in Hebrew was later translated into Greek by James the Less. Um, so more can be said about that in other venues, but nonetheless, he's the author of Matthew's Gospel. Although there is an early account that suggests that Matthew died naturally, the consensus, however, is that he too died a martyr's death. Um, he appears to have been slain with a halberd. Uh, the word halberd uh, comes from the German word uh, halm, that means staff, and bart, which means axe. Hence, why you often hear people say that Matthew was slain with an axe. Um, some also suggest that he died via a head wound, a sword wound, and was later perhaps beheaded. That's Matthew. We come to James, the son of Alphaeus, more literally, James of Alphaeus. This James is distinguished by his father. This is how he is differentiated in uh, the list, Alphaeus. Now, as I've noted to you before, last last names were not a thing among the Jewish people. So people who had the same name were often differentiated by their father. Um, Such was the case with him. Now, interestingly, if you go through the, the scriptures, and some of you might even be thinking of this, you're like, wait a minute, wasn't Matthew's father Alphaeus? Yes, he was, but was it the same Alphaeus? Right? Um, like Lauren's uh, sister is married to uh, George. That's not me. <laughs> so you can, you, can, you can have people with a, a same common name. I would lean towards one who thinks that um, Matthew and James were not brothers. Now, the reason why I say that is because you go through some of the lists in the New Testament and you'll see that Peter and Andrew are said to be brothers. You see that James and John are said to be brothers. You don't see that with Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus. So I think they had dads who had the same name. Both had a dad named Alphaeus. Um, Interestingly, here he is the one who is often um, noted to be James the Less. James the Less. And that appears to be derived from uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Um, now you're like, well, what does that mean? Did he have to like, walk around all the time being like, James the less than? Is that what that meant? Like he just wasn't all that he could be. He was less than another James. Now Some suggest it could have been an element of influence that was connoted in that, that he was not the James who was among the three and better known. Uh, I think it's more likely, however, that it just meant that he was younger. The word that's used there in the Greek, mikros, could also speak of being small in stature. So it was a way in which he was differentiated, James the younger, or James the one who was smaller in stature. But he does happen to be one who is lesser known than um, other James. Uh, James is noted in the scriptures. Some think he was the Lord's brother. Um, I don't think so. Uh, because of what we see that the Lord's brothers did not believe during his ministry. And a little bit later on in the same passage, we're going to see the Lord's brothers listed. So you'll see like somebody like Fox and others would think that. Uh, I would be somebody who doesn't think that. I think this is a distinguished James. Not to mention he's called uh, son of Alphaeus. Um, and the of Alphaeus, I think, connotes that that was his father. So there's not much known about him. He served in, to some degree, at least by our standards, um, as being less well-known. Um, doubtless I don't think he was that obscure in those days he was an apostle used mightily by God but to us we're like wow we don't even know much about this man this man who Jesus said would sit with the other apostles on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel a man whose name is written on a foundation stone in the new Jerusalem yet we don't know that much about him and perhaps that could be an encouragement to you and I as we serve in relative obscurity people don't have to know what you do You don't have to be well-known. You just have to be, by God's grace, faithful to the God who saved you, to the Savior who shed his blood for you. How did he die? We're not sure. Again, because there was, I think, a measure of confusion between him and James the Just, the Lord's brother who became a leader in the Jerusalem church, some confuse, I would argue, his martyrdom with James the Just's martyrdom. A little bit of an aside, the Lord's brother, James the Just, appears to have preached I've told you this before on other occasions, been preaching at the pinnacle of the temple where he was thrown down from, and then subsequently after falling down to the ground, somebody came up to him as he was on the floor, hit him in the head with a fuller's club. Some even use very graphic language, dashing his brains out, and then he might have been subsequently stoned after that. That's James, the Lord's brother, who I would argue is different from James the Apostle here. Others think he preached in Egypt, this James, and was crucified there, Others suggest that he preached in Iran and was crucified there. So he likely gave his life as well for the Lord Jesus Christ. Two more apostles left in this list of 11. There's Simon the Zealot. Here in Acts chapter 1 verse 13 he is identified as Simon the Zealot. The word zealot as we know could refer to somebody who is zealous for a given thing. But the connotation here is that he was likely identified with a political movement in Judaism known as the Zealots. They were so anti-Roman, they would carry out these kind of guerrilla warfare tactics against the empire. They hated Rome. They wanted to do whatever they could to be a thorn in Rome's body. And they did whatever they could to antagonize them in the hopes of eventually overthrowing them. And then this man comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and becomes an apostle. And as has been noted before, and I will say it again, think of how neat it is to think of Simon and Matthew being apostles together. I mean, this man, being a zealot, having that kind of history, hating Rome, think of how much natural anger and angst he would have towards somebody like Matthew, who was subcontracted by Rome, was basically doing Rome's dirty work for them. Yet in God's sovereign providence, he would put those two together. And they would be united together. And they were in, as we're going to see, in one accord. They were in one accord as they prayed together among others in this upper room waiting for the day of Pentecost. Um, How did he die? It's not exactly all clear um, to me, but tradition says that he was martyred in Persia. A little synopsis of this could be found on Got Questions, uh, proclaiming the gospel there, and martyred for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. So likely martyred as well. And last we come to Judas, the son of James. James. This Judas is known as Judas, not Iscariot. When you look at John chapter 14, verse 22, we hear him speak one time in the New Testament. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, this is Judas, the son of James, Judas of James. But again, as I noted before, he appears to have had a few names, one of which was Judas, another of which was Thaddeus, and another of which was Labaius. Thaddeus means breast child, and Lebeus means heart child. So these were likely terms of endearment that were given to him by his mother and or family members. And there's other things that you could say about the possibilities of these names being given to him. But for the purposes of time, I'll move on to the words that we see him speak. The only words we hear Thaddeus speak in the New Testament are found in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 22. But I'm going to begin at verse 20 so you get a little bit of context and you see why he's saying what he said. Jesus says, At that day, this is verse 20 of John 14, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We see the honesty of the apostles as they're hearing things like this. Things that we read and we're like, oh, amen, that is amazing on so many levels. We can unpack that. But Judas, not Iscariot, Judas the son of James here, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He's just not getting it at that point. Thinking, okay, you're the Messiah. Like the world has to know. We have these amazing pictures in the New Testament of the, nature, the, the nations flowing to Jerusalem. How is that going to happen if you only reveal yourself to us and not to the world? And that would happen in time, but it wasn't going to happen in that immediate time. But he's the one, Judas the son of James, who asks that question, which prompts Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home in him. Make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So when you think of the beautiful doctrine of perichoresis, and you're like, I don't even know what the beautiful doctrine of perichoresis is. I'll explain it to you. It's a beautiful doctrine. We talked talked about this in the doctrine of God. It basically means this. means mutual indwelling. It basically means that where one person of the Trinity is, the other two are ontologically, by way of being. You can't separate the persons of the Trinity. So where one person of the Trinity is, the being of God is there. Doubtless the other two persons of the Trinity are inextricably joined. So what does that mean in this context? It was Judas's question, Judas the son of James, his question that prompts Jesus to say, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And that's where you start thinking through New Testament lenses. You're like, wait a minute. So the father is in me, and the son is in me? And the answer is yes. But then the next question would be how? How is the father in you? How is the son in you? We know Jesus is at the right hand of the father. So how is the son in you? Because the person of the Holy Spirit is in you. And here's the doctrine of perichoresis. Where one person of the Trinity is, the other two are ontologically. You see this, we can go through other examples, right? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus, through the Spirit, offered himself upon the cross. Of course, because where one person of the Trinity is, the other two are ontologically. You can't rip apart the being of God. You make distinctions of persons, but you can't rip apart the being of God. Well, I love that verse, and what it reminds me of when I think of the Holy Spirit being in me and the Father and the Son being in me via the person of the Holy Spirit, that came via Judas, the son of James's question. And just as a reminder to us, his question also prompted Jesus to reinforce the point, he who does not love me does not keep my words. Do you want to know if you're a Christian? You want to know? Do a quick test right now. Do you obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Not perfectly. It's not whether, you've heard this many times, but I'll say it again. It's not whether you prayed a prayer on some given occasion. That is not the witness of a Christian. The question as to whether or not you are a Christian is, are you believing the gospel right now? Do you believe that Jesus died for you? But how do you know that your belief is actually a real belief? How do you know it's not fool's gold? Jesus talked about these kind of people in Luke chapter 8 who believe for a while, but they have no root. How do you know that you do not have simple intellectual assent? Like, yeah, I buy that. That's the most reasonable option among world religions. How do you know that your faith is not a fool's gold faith? Well, one of the ways you'll know, and you see this in 1 John, is by a track record, by God's grace, of a trajectory of obedience. Jesus spoke to those in Luke chapter 6 to whom he said, "Why do you call me Lord and not do the things I say?" It's going to be honest with you. I don't want anybody in this room to be deceived. If you don't care about obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, if obeying Jesus is not a priority to you, if you have a whole bunch of priorities in your life and it does not include obeying the Lord Jesus Christ, the good chance is you're not a Christian. Otherwise, you are in a state of disobedience and you need to repent. It's serious. Don't wait, do it now. Jesus said it. He says it multiple times in the Gospel of John. He who loves me keeps my commandments. But we can make up all these other reasons why we think we love Jesus, yet we disobey his commandments, which is witnessing to the fact that we don't actually obey him. And again, please know I'm not saying you have to obey him perfectly. You can't. But part of the way that you obey him when you disobey him is by confessing your faults to others to pray for you and telling him that you're sorry and so on and repenting. That's part of the way you obey him. So even in your disobedience, you can display obedience. So, thank you, Judas, son of James, for asking Jesus what you did and prompting such amazing statements to come from our Lord's mouth. Um, again, noting from Got Questions, uh, I, I like the statement here. Extra biblical literature says that after Pentecost, Thaddeus took the gospel message north, where he performed miracles, preached, and founded a church in Edessa, an area in modern Turkey. One tradition says that he was either clubbed or axed to death for his faith, and another that he was crucified. One of the things that's really interesting to note, and I won't go into this in extended detail, is that these men wrought mighty miracles by the hand of God. And one of the reasons why you can get excited about heaven is because perhaps God will allow us to hear about, I don't know, see in kind of replay form what these men did. There are stories connected with these men as to how they might have been used in people's lives, Um, This man, Judas, son of James, might have been used to heal a king who was in Syria and might have been clubbed uh, to death for his faith there. So it's exciting to think how God used these men and confirmed his word with signs and wonders through them. They were his apostolic messengers. Well, that brings us to our conclusion for today. uh, And we'll have to wait um, for the rest of this passage, Lord willing, next week. We'll see that. Verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Uh, As I noted, um, older manuscripts do not include the words end supplication. Um, But here I want you to see this, how their waiting time was not wasted. I simply call your attention to the fact that they prayed. And look at some of the attributes of their praying. First thing I want you to see is that they continued in prayer. They persevered in prayer. The Greek word that's used here for continued is a word that basically means to persist in, to continue in, to be steadfast in. They continued in prayer. Their season was not a season of simply inactivity. During the waiting, they were praying, and that in itself is incredibly instructive for us. Jesus spoke a parable in Luke 18.1 that men ought always to pray and not to faint. But this is not simply a description of what they did. In light of other texts in the New Testament where the same words are used with respect to prayer, we should know from this description that it matches, if you will, to a degree, the prescription that God has for us. We are to be continuing and devoted to prayer Same language used, same Greek word used in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, where we're told we are to be continuing steadfastly in prayer. Same Greek word. In Colossians, Paul told the Colossians to continue earnestly. Same Greek word in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So you see this New Testament church in its kind of foundling stage before the day of Pentecost, the precursor of that New Testament church founding, if you will. And here they are, as one commentator made reference, their main and constant employment was prayer. As Matthew Poole said, they attended to it, quote, with great resolution. See, starting in prayer is good. Continuing in prayer is better. Starting in prayer is necessary. You got to do that. You got to start. But continuing in it is better. A couple notes here. Don't just think private prayer, Right? That's, that's a good takeaway. I apply that to you. But notice the language, they all. I mean, that's the kind of language that's right there in the Greek. It's a plural uh, word that's used there, they all. It's a plural word, plural noun, but then it's emphasized by the word all that's followed. They all. The apostles, along with others, they committed to praying together. Just as a question, um, think about when the last time was that you prayed with other Christians. Now, in some cases, you might be saying, okay, that was not too long ago. If you're like, I can't remember the last time that I prayed with other Christians, make it a priority to pray with other Christians. I mean, one of the reasons we have prayer meeting is to kind of follow that biblical call that the early church devoted themselves. They continued in studying the apostles' doctrine and, among other things, prayer. Prayer. So starting in prayer is good, continuing in prayer is better, and the last thing I'll call your attention to now, and then we'll pick up Lord willing next week, is that they were in one accord. One accord. Um, when we pray together, our unity should be um, should be present, uh, should be demonstrated in the way that we pray for one another. Um, you don't want to be somebody who prays... Um, <laughs> Who prays against other people in their presence? You may have been in a time of prayer like that where somebody's praying and you're like, Are they praying about me without like telling me? Like they never told me they were upset with me. And it's like, I've been in an occasion like that, like, Oh, I just got to stop. Like, Is that for me? Don't do that. One accord. If you have something that's, you know, and that could happen in the body of Christ. You could love people in this room and you could have issues at some point and you say, Look, I have to tell you, I'm actually a little bit upset or I'm a little bit offended or this happened. That's okay. That happens. That happens. But what do you do? You don't just figure it out in prayer, praying about the person. You go and you make it right with them. Um, Because when we come together in prayer, we're supposed to be in one mind and one accord. And doubtless they were, right? They were in one mind, one accord. What is at the root of their one accordness, if you will? They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was risen from the dead. They believed that he had ascended into heaven. And that's the soil from which all other unity flows. That's the soil from which all other unity flows. The gospel. The gospel. So more about how to use a waiting season, um, Lord willing, next week. But I would say this, as some takeaways. Render unto the Lord swift obedience in the things that he's calling you to. If you're not familiar with the lives of these apostles in the text of Scripture, hopefully you are a little bit more now and you could be encouraged to live your life for the glory of God. Uh, and self-sacrifice for others, even as they did. And whatever your waiting season is, however you apply that to yourself, if you feel like you're in a waiting season, may the, by the grace of God, may prayer be a part of that. And I would encourage you to have prayer with other people, other saints, other people of God as a part of that season of waiting. But Lord willing, we'll see that they didn't just pray. Apparently, the Scriptures were being searched and then Peter's going to make a proclamation that we're going to see next week that's going to show you why this waiting period was necessary. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for the One who is the way, the truth, and the life. The one to whom Thomas said, My Lord and my God. We thank you that you dwell within us and your Son does via the person of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've opened up our eyes to proclaim, even as Peter did, that your Son is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Father, as we go from here today, may you help us, Lord, to walk in the footsteps, Lord, most ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we thank you for imperfect examples like these men following the perfect example. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might find in us that growing grace of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and seeking to obey you swiftly, not just for the sake of personal efficiency and things like that, but for the glory of our Savior. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the text of Scripture. May you find us, Lord, all the more as the day draws near, in our prayer closets and praying with one another, In one accord, continuing in it, in Jesus' name, amen.